Hello once again to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air tonight. We're halfway through the week, and it's hard to believe that we are almost through with July. Uh, It didn't seem that long ago we were celebrating our um, July 4th um, holiday. Uh, As a matter of fact, this coming Saturday will mark uh, three weeks ago since we did celebrate the 4th of July. Well, um, I'm looking forward to uh, presenting to you all uh, with another uh, podcast session of Steve Vogel's book, Through the Perilous Fight, From the Burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner, The Six Weeks That Saved the Nation. I know I've uh, mentioned this title um, more than once, but it's it's probably a good thing to mention more than just Through the Perilous Fight, because if the other segment is not um, mentioned, then um, then it doesn't. Then the first part of the uh, title doesn't really have a true meaning to it, because through the perilous fight itself could mean almost anything, but knowing that um, that the burning of our capital did take place in the War of eighteen twelve to to our national anthem being born, and basically a six week ordeal that saved the nation. All of that has meaning in understanding why the book is titled Through the Perilous Fight. Now, we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight, and it's going to be a lot of um, ground that's uh, obviously relevant, ground that is, um, I don't know if scary is the right word, but ground that could be uh, intimidating, uh, ground that is unsettling. But we have a lot to go, and I'm going to make it worth your all's while tonight. But then again, I hopefully I've been able to do that with the other podcast sessions. If I haven't, hopefully somebody should say something by now. But anyways, um, I think uh, uh, one thing that's important to point out here is um, the following. You know... We've been led to believe for a long time that the oldest military installation in the United States um, was the uh, White House, for example, not the White House, but military installation in terms of um, West Point. Well, West Point has was founded in 1802 when Thomas Jefferson was president, but that's a military academy. So, the oldest military installation in the United States before and during the War of 1812 is the Washington Navy Yard. Did the British um, feel that, or should I say, did the British believe that attacking the Navy Yard was just as important as uh, burning uh, Washington itself? Yes. How so? Well... The, Brit- uh, the Navy Yard is where we are building our, our, um, our ships. Uh, not just ships, we could be building frigates, schooners, um, masts. I mean, we could be sloops of war, brigs, um, a whole nine yards or, of ships. So if the uh, Navy Yard is destroyed, then where else are we going to go to build ships? I mean, think about it. Uh, 
Norfolk, yes, it might be a port city, and it still is today, but at the time, Norfolk doesn't have the capacity to build, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, that is, doesn't have the capacity to build uh, ships. On the other hand, Baltimore, Maryland would probably be your closest um, city. After all, they did build nearly about 60 ships during the War of 1812 that were for privateering purposes. Now, the British uh, leadership is pretty well unified on their objective, and that is to um, wreak havoc on the, United, on the United States of America. Not just wreak havoc in one area, being up and down the Chesapeake Bay, but perhaps to um, destroy our country to where our government no longer would function. So does the British leadership propose multiple strategies for their primary target? being Washington, D.C. Yes. Uh, one, one example I found that is uh, worth pointing out had to do with what Rear Admiral George Coburn proposed. He came up with an idea where droves of men would sail up the Patuxent River to the town of Benedict, Maryland, which was the furthest point where frigates and schooners could navigate until the Patuxent itself became too narrow, or what's called shallow, to um, get around from point A to point B. Uh, we must remember that not all rivers are equipped to handle um, ships of any size. Uh, there are some sections of a river where a certain ship or two, based off of its size, can navigate through. And then there are other ships that are just simply not deemed um, navigable because they are too big in size. Matter of fact, um, speaking of ship size, I remember when my wife and I last went to Jamestown back in uh, February, Jamestown, Virginia, that is, a part of the historic triangle. We were told uh, from one of the interpreters that uh, one of the three ships was, I think it was the, the tallest being the uh, Susan Constant in terms of her size. Uh, the sh we were always led to believe that the ships that navigated through the uh, James River, or of course it wasn't the James River then, uh, the English named it the James River in honor of King James I, but we were always led to believe that the ships that came over from England had no trouble um, navigating through the uh, waters of the Chesapeake Bay. Well, it turns out that uh, this interpreter told us that one of the uh, three ships had it so rough in terms of navigating the waters that it um, ran over uh, oyster beds and uh, did uh, impact some of the uh, oyster uh, population. So the bottom line is, is that ships themselves, not all ships, regardless of their size, are going to have a successful um, go-about with uh, navigating um, the ri rivers. So, um, at Benedict, Maryland, that is where troops would be, would be um, coming off of their um, ships, or what you call frigates or schooners, and once off of the ship, they would move by land to attack cities like Baltimore or Washington. So the bottom line is this, yes, you can have warfare on the water, but ships like schooners and brigs and uh, or you know frigates um, 
sloops of war, they're going to have to find a way to um, make it to um, not just harbor, but make it to uh, somewhere where water and land can link one another to where um, troops can get off the boats and be able to march to their uh, destination by land for a surprise attack. Well, besides Rear Admiral George Coburn and Vice Admiral Alexander Cochran, is there another high-ranking British officer who will play a vital role in the plot to attack Washington? Yes. Now, I do know that there are many well-known British-ranking um, officers. We've already uh, talked about two of them being Rear Admiral George Coburn and Vice Admiral Alexander Cochrane. This third fellow who will play a vital role in the plot to attack Washington, his name is General Major General Robert Ross. Here's some uh, 101 information on this uh, fellow or should I say on this major general. He was born in 1766 in Rostrover, or Rostrever, which is in County Down, Ireland. It turns out that he comes from a family who has uh, served in the military. His father was Major David Ross, an officer in the Seven Years' War, or what we referred to here as the French and Indian War. Uh, Major General Robert Ross uh, was educated at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. He joined the 25th Regiment of Foot as an ensign, or as an ensign, in 1789. So basically, he's not in the military until about 23. He begins to make a name for himself militarily during the Napoleonic Wars. He made his presence known in 1807 at Maida, or Maiada, in Calabria, southern Italy. How so? Well, he is a part of the famous 20th Regiment, and he rushed into a skirmish on a flank attack that enabled him and his forces to rout the French and nearly turn the tide of the battle. Well, that, that battle allows him to shine in, in other battles, one after another, throughout the Napoleonic Wars, to where his performance during what was known as the Peninsular War, that is, gaining that war had to do with gaining control of Portugal and Spain, this earned him the gold medal for bravery. So his performance in the Peninsular War enables him to lead an expedition to America. And we're not talking an expedition like Christopher Columbus or um, Henry Hudson or Samuel Day Champlain. This expedition is more serious than a, um, not that the European expeditions to search for um, new passage routes in the New World was important. This one's probably even grander. The expedition to America has to do with the War of 1812. Well, who's going to show Major General Ross just how easy attacking Washington's going to be? Rear Admiral George Coburn. All right. What is unique about August 16, 1814? A U.S. Navy lookout person, okay, one who's on lookout is um, watching the water to see 
not just ships coming and going, but on the lookout for anything that is considered uh, suspicious, that would raise a red flag to the security and well-being, not just for yourself, but perhaps for the crew of your ship. So a U.S. Navy lookout person at Cape Henry, which is on Virginia's eastern shore, spots 22 ships sailing in from the Atlantic Ocean. All right, people, uh, where do you think these 22 ships are coming from? They're coming from England. Three ships of the line, seven transports, seven frigates, two assorted brigs, razors, and schooners. Should this be another red flag for President Madison? Yes, it should be. You know, it's one thing to see, you know, maybe one or three ships of the enemy coming in. You've got 22. Yeah, I would be very, very concerned for what's going to lie ahead. All 22 ships comprise a small but deadly force from four experienced, well-known regiments. I did a little research on these regiments. They all have some significant history. Regiment number one was referred to as the 4th Regiment of Foot, or what's known as the King's Own Royal Regiment. This regiment dates back to the American Revolutionary War, to recently fought battles from the Napoleonic Wars. The second one is the 44th Regiment of Foot, which dates back to the French and Indian War. This regiment marched west with General Edward Braddock and was almost massacred near present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. As a matter of fact, my wife and I went to Mount Vernon two years ago. That was uh, where George Washington lived. And we saw a um, movie presentation. And there was a scene where uh, General Edward Braddock and a handful of uh, British uh, troops and uh, officers and everyday 101 rank-and-file soldiers are going through the woods of what we now know as western Pennsylvania. They were slaughtered by the French and the Indians. Did this regiment make it to safety in the end? Yes. Sadly, General Edward Braddock lost his life that day. The regiment made it to safety under the leadership of a young George Washington. So, had it not been for George Washington's leadership... The rest of the regiment probably would have either been taken as prisoner of war or would have been massacred. So, George Washington was in his early 20s when the French and Indian War breaks out. This is the first of many good things to come for him in terms of uh, military leadership. And his leadership was proven at that time. Uh, number three is the 85th Light Infantry Regiment, or what's known as the Bucks uh, Volunteer. They fought against France along with fighting in the Netherlands and the West Indies. And lastly, number four is the 21st Regular of Foot, or the Royal North British Fusilier. They had a wealth of combat experience in Italy. 
Very interesting. All four regiments, all four of these regiments, rather, I should say, are tough and well-experienced fighters. The irony, though, is that the total number of all four of these regiments all together is less than 4,000 men. But they are seen as being best of the best which the British military has to offer. So, the vast majority of your British soldiers are just everyday 101 uh, people, or men rather, I should say. There's nothing wrong with that. But to be a part of the 4th Regiment, 44th, 85th, and 21st, that might as well be the equivalent of being like a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL, um, someone who um, is high up, in the, not just in the rank of the military, but in terms of years of experience. Well, let me ask you all this question. Given that the British have already made a uh, strong presence along up and down the Chesapeake Bay, were living conditions on British ships excellent? No. Not at all. As a matter of fact, um, well, to make, for starters, many of the troops, if not many, all of them on, the, on their ships, were surrounded by airless compartments to dreadful heat. And it's not just so much the hot weather in the summer, but the summers along the Chesapeake Bay are known for bringing outbreaks of typhus fever, or what's called typhoid fever. So, you know, I, I believe that most of these British soldiers and sailors, if in fact mo not most of them, all of them, I know where they would rather be. They'd rather be back in... England with their families. However, the longer they are in the United States, you know, stationed either on Tangier Island or up and down the um, Maryland Eastern, Maryland, Virginia Eastern Shore via the Chesapeake Bay, the greater their hatred becomes of the United States. Why so? Because they've basically been forced to go into a war that they never really wanted to be in to begin with. But they're, but they're on our soil because in the end they're going to teach us a lesson, a very bad lesson, on what it, what it means to be messing with the wrong people. In other words, it's one thing to, to declare war on the enemy, being the United States and how they've, President Madison and the... Um, Congress being that of the um, anti-federalists or the group known as the Warhawks who have declared war on England. The problem, though, is that they have not um, found all the proper justifications, not just justifications for going, but in terms of uh, not having people where they should be, especially protecting the coast. Now, on August 17, 1814, at Point Lookout, Maryland, a fellow by the name of Thomas Swan, who is, an Amer who is a military observer, he counts 46 ships spread out over two miles. Okay, so that one fellow a day earlier counted 22. Now Thomas Swan has spotted 46. Ships range from bomb ships, transports, frigates, schooners, sloops of war. 
This is pretty overwhelming. 46 ships and not knowing what's going to lie at stake for uh, the United States. Because as I've said before, and I'm going to say it again, we're going to be in for a rude awakening. I mean, we kind of already are, but the worst is still yet to come. So what does Thomas Swan do? He writes a message to John Armstrong, good old John Armstrong, everybody's favorite Secretary of War. I don't think so. The size of the fleet pointed to one direction only. An invasion was coming. Well, Thomas Swan sends, has a courier take this message to Secretary of War John Armstrong. How many miles does, this, does the courier have to go to get to Washington, D.C.? I'll give you a hint. The number is between 60 and, a, and 90. The answer is 70. So can you imagine if you're this courier going 70 miles from Point Lookout, Maryland, to uh, Washington, D.C.? And he's got to get there as quick as possible. Okay, we're going to learn about a, um, an American man, or should I say a military man, who actually didn't make the military his career, but he, was, um, he uh, received a field commission, let's put it this way. That's how he got involved in the military. His name is William Winder. He's born in the year 1775 in Somerset County, Maryland. He is a Penn University graduate, and from 1798 to 1812, he practices law in Baltimore, and he is also known to be at the top of the law profession. Maryland, it seems, uh, has produced a great share of lawyers. You've got Francis Scott Key, Roger Brooke Taney, and now you've got William Winder. And, of course, I know that there are others, but these three seem to be really at the top of their game. Well, what, what else do we know about William Winder? He was a Federalist. And you know, now the irony, though, is that most Federalists are against this war. It turns out, however, that he supports going to war. Well, there's always a first for something. He would be considered the minority in his party who has uh, supported it. In March of 1812, he receives a commission as a lieutenant colonel in the army. This may seem like a very, very good first step for him in terms of military experience. However, there's a twist or a double-edged sword here. He has limited military experience. And, uh, however, even though he has limited military experience, what... Um, promotion does he get that leads him to become a brigadier general? He led an infantry regiment from Maryland to the Niagara frontier where his actions were so good that it led him to this promotion. However, is this, a pro is this promotion going to guarantee him long-term success? No. The first blunder, his first blunder of military mishap occurs at Stony Creek, Stony Creek, in June 1813 on the shore of Lake Ontario. He goes into enemy lines during a British night counterattack. It's bad enough he does that. What happens next? He becomes a prisoner of war for nearly a year. But while in prison, he's able to put his lawyer skills to work 
by diffusing a tense standoff between the U.S. and the British governments. So, yes, it's unfortunate that he makes that disastrous blunder where he goes in the middle of the night into enemy lines during a British night counterattack, but thank heavens he's able to use his lawyer skills to defuse any further conflicts between the U.S. and the British governments. He becomes Brigadier General in 1814. He oversees the 10th Military District. What, is, what does the 10th Military District encompass? D.C., Northern Virginia, all of Maryland, including Baltimore and Annapolis. Who's the governor of Maryland? Well, it turns out to be another family member of the, uh, another member of the Winder family, none other than uh, William's uncle. Levin Winder. And Maryland is going to need to have the largest supply of militia to defend the capital, considering how far, or considering rather how close Maryland is in general to Washington, D.C. Was William Winder an effective? Let me ask you this Was William Winder effective from a military perspective? No. He spent too much time studying terrain, meaning land, uh, or what you call um, geography, uh, and all that. Not that there's nothing wrong with it, but I'll tell you here in a sec, he also spends too much time examining defenses to issuing batches of memos. He didn't raise troops nor develop any hardcore game plan for protecting the 10th Military District. Okay, you could study terrain all you want. You can issue batches of memos, that is, orders. But if you don't go about developing a um, hardcore game plan for protecting your district, then you really are up a creek. You are playing with fire. And to make matters worse, William's uncle, Levin, didn't send any militia to defend the Maryland towns. So basically, even his Uncle Levin is a sitting duck. D.C., Virginia, and Pennsylvania did not have anywhere near the required number of militiamen to defend Washington. How many uh, militiamen does President Madison want ready to fight, or should I say be available? I couldn't believe this number, but when you consider James Madison's lack of military um, prepared, not just military preparedness, but military logistical planning in terms of a um, number of men to be available to fight, this number is pretty high. He wanted 15,000 militiamen ready to fight. The proposal came nowhere close in the end, that is. On J July 17th of 1814, William Winder gets only 250 out of 3,000 militiamen required. I mean, 250 might be better than nothing, but my gosh, he is, um, he's really up a creek. I mean, he really is going to um, be on pins and needles, and he only got... 600 army regulars from Secretary of War John Armstrong. This is considered to have been a slap in the face. But in the days leading up to August 24th of 1814, 
regular civilians were leaving Washington left and right in fear for their own lives and getting as far away from the enemy, being the British as possible, because they know that uh, they have not been given any proper assurance, that is the people knowing that the Madison administration is going to protect them. Madison himself even told the mayor of Washington that he couldn't guarantee their protection. What takes place on August 24th of 1814? The battles of Bladensburg, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. You know, when people uh, think of Maryland, they usually tend to think of um, Baltimore, Annapolis, the Eastern Shore. Not that there's nothing wrong with that. But there is one place in Maryland that tends to be forgotten, and it was uh, Bladensburg. Well, Bladensburg was founded in 1742. How ironic that it was founded the year before Thomas Jefferson was born. George Washington was 10 years old in 1742. Bladensburg is six miles northeast of the Capitol building at the point where the turnpike from Washington to Baltimore crossed the eastern branch. Now, Bladensburg was a thriving port village before Washington itself was even built. Ship with, ships with goods from all around the world came to trade for tobacco. Bladensburg had its share great share for being a uh, port village, but in the end, the town got plagued by erosion. However, it still managed to survive by having good roads. These good roads came from Washington, Georgetown, Baltimore, southern Maryland to Annapolis, and it even became the weekend destination spot. Bladensburg also became a hot spot for dueling. We all know what dueling means, it's, it's, or not so much means, we should know that it was a gentleman's uh, sport activity for uh, resolving problems. In other words, if you both, of, both men were out to not just so much get each other, but couldn't stand each other to the point where one wanted to eliminate the other, you came to show, you came to show up to uh, engage in a um, pistol battle. You walked uh, 12 steps away from uh, your enemy and when it was time to take aim and fire you turned around and if you were ready to fight you better have fired your revolver or pistol if you weren't ready you took the bullets out dropped them to the ground as well as your uh, pistol or revolver in other words you showed up you still showed up but today was just not the day to um, to do it Yes, so Bladensburg did have a reputation as being a hot spot for dueling. What was the overall population of this um, port? Well, I don't believe it's still considered a port village by the War of 1812, but what is the population for, of Bladensburg leading up to um, the uneventful um, situation of August the 24th? Well, it's above 1,000 people. It's right around 1,500. But on August 24th, most of the 1,500 people had already fled. 
I think it's safe to say that they too knew what was coming and not have any not having any positive reinsurance from uh, James Madison's administration or most notably Madison himself just doesn't help whatsoever. Well, where is uh, Francis Scott Key? Is he in on the action in Bladensburg? Yes, he is fulfilling the role of civilian aide to Brigadier General Walter Smith. Now, Brigadier General Walter Smith is also a tactician. Is Francis Scott Key a tactician? No. He has no skills as a military tactician, but what is to Francis's advantage is that he knows the terrain well around Bladensburg. In the end, Key himself joins uh, Brigadier General Walter Smith as the overseers who, um, o- who go about overseeing the positioning of the D.C. militia. Is Secretary of State James Monroe in on the action at Bladensburg as well? Yes, he is. He has helped reorganize Brigadier General Tobias Stansbury's 1st and 2nd Regiments from, from um, being vulnerable to a flank attack on their left side. Flank attacks basically are, um, they're not from regiments that are in the middle or chasse a unit. Basically, they involve regiments that are to the far left and to the far right of a brigade unit. And if they are left unprotected, the enemy can come from any direction and launch a surprise attack to where um, the unit itself can be decimated in a short amount of time. So, had it not been for James Monroe... Who knows uh, what might have happened to this 1st and 2nd Regiment once they are actually out on the actual battlefield fighting. Now, we are obviously in the month of August of 1814, and it's summer. And in Maryland, summers can get pretty hot. Historians know just exactly how hot it was on the day of August 24th, 1814 in Bladensburg, Maryland. It was 98 degrees. I can't imagine what the heat index might have been like, but it was probably over 100. So moving around from point A to point B in Bladensburg is not going to be easy. I can't even imagine just how many stops many of the men had to make along the way when you consider the the quality of shoes they probably were wearing. Uh, Think about it. Most units probably would have marched 10 miles in one day, and that was a lot. But you also have to remember, too, and it's not just uh, walking along an asphalt road like we know today. They could have been going through uh, muddy swamps. They could not just, or we call it um, roads that were near swamps or, um, or, or any body of water, let alone. So um, as for the American troops, were they wearing, pre- were they presentable? Or in other words, did they look presentable? with uh, clothing that was on them. No, some of these American troops wore black coats, some had shooting jackets, and others wore round frocks. So in other words, they pretty much just put on the, the clothes that they had at home to come out and fight. In some ways, it almost would remind me of the Minutemen from Massachusetts who came out at the last minute at Lexington and Concord to fight, but 
I'd almost have to say that perhaps the men from Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts in 1775 were probably a little bit more uh, attractive and presentable versus the men in the War of 1812 at Bladensburg. And should I also say eventually D.C. too. Well, what did Navy Secretary William Jones tell President Madison to do about the Washington Navy Yard and the bridge from Bladensburg to Washington? Mr. Jones specifically told Madison to have the troops destroy by fire both pieces of property to prevent the British from capturing them. Lastly, if Washington were to be lost, where was President Madison's cabinet going to reconvene? James Madison himself had even told his cabinet that we would reconvene in Frederick, Maryland, 45 miles northwest of D.C., I bet my friends from college who were from uh, Frederick, Maryland would find that very interesting. Well, for one, Frederick is west of Baltimore, and two, being only uh, maybe in today's time 40, 50 miles northwest of D.C. So in other words, for James Madison, this could have been, this alternate location could have been like the equivalent of um, a Greenbrier in West Virginia. The Greenbrier Resort for a number of years course, now I'm talking in the present day, but the Greenbrier Resort for a number of years was a makeshift uh, governmental facility where all of Congress would go if in the event a nuclear attack occurred on our country. This was at the height of the Cold War. Um, the Soviets, the old Soviet Union, or should I say yet Russia and the United States were competing against each other for an, um, an arms race. But but Congress was convinced that if an attack would occur, they were going to have to um, build a makeshift uh, bunker facility where government would still function, and that was being in the Greenbrier. Well, folks, we have covered a lot of ground tonight, and in our next podcast session, we're going to actually uh, talk about the actual battles. These battles are... Um, are very key to understanding why the inevitable happened, being the burning of Washington. I know part of me might be even giving it away right now, but, but, this is reality. And when I read this book a couple of months back, the it was so well detailed. Uh, Steve Vogel did such a great job with it, but when you're reading this book, you actually feel as though you are alive during this time. You, you feel that there is a sense of hopelessness by the, by the everyday American people knowing that President Madison could have done more to have um, prevented the, un, the unthinkable from happening. Well, folks, thank you for listening tonight. Stay safe, and I'll look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Take care.